The Northern New York Community Foundation, together with WPBSDT, present the Northern New York Community Podcast Initiative, stories from the heart of our community. Hi, folks, and welcome into another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. We often forget that across the hundreds of miles composing the North Country is a rich history and breadth of talent in performing arts. Whether it's vocal, instrumental, or other, each community contains an arts presence that is unique and respected. Can residents Tim and Jill Savage are active participants in bringing diverse musical performances and educational experiences to Northern New York. As music educators and performers, the arts is part of their inspiration to give back locally. We examine Tim and Jill's journey in music and teaching, but also dissect the role of philanthropy in their lives. Before we start, let's take a moment to thank our supporters, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They are responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to www.wpbstv.org to see the latest from WPBS and www.nnycf.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. Now, let's begin our conversation with Tim and Jill Savage. It's great to have you both here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Max. Certainly. We, we always open by getting some background, where you both grew up, and for both of you, actually, it was outside of northern New York. Sure. So could you just share a little bit uh, of where your hometown is and, and what brought you to the North Country? Well, I grew up in Liverpool, New York. My first teaching job was at Indian River. I was the orchestra director there. I grew up in just south of Malone, New York, in uh, Chasm Falls and Owl's Head and uh, graduated from Malone Central Schools in 1979 and then attended the Crane School of Music. And after that, played professionally for a little bit and then went into education. So music has been part of your lives even since childhood, I would imagine, or part of the influence um, to where you are today, certainly. Where did your interest in music begin? Well, I started playing violin when I was in third grade in the school music program and I chose violin because I wanted to be like my mom she was a she was a musician and it was always part of part of our life my parents made sure that we went to concerts and took private lessons and um, when I got to high school and had to choose what I wanted to do with my life I thought about lots of different things and finally realized that I could make a living doing what I'd always done. I thought that was pretty cool. Was there something other than music, Jill, that you were interested in when it came time to decide what's, what's my path going to be? Well, I was thinking about architecture and pharmacy, and yeah, those were probably the two, two things I, main things I was thinking about. But then yeah, all of a sudden music made sense because it was what I'd always done. Tim, how about you? I have a very vivid memory when I was five of seeing Louis Armstrong on TV and uh, it was just a, a real strong connection. I, I don't know whether it was the smile, which was completely engaging, um, the shiny trumpet, the white handkerchief, or just the, the voice and just the sheer joy that came through that TV screen and I thought this is, this is what, you know, is the most special thing 
And so um, I was able to start trumpet in fifth grade in the Malone Central Schools. And my dad had also done some playing. Um, he was a saxophone player in, in local groups. And he got us started in, in, in the den at home. All of us played an instrument and we'd have little jam sessions early on and that was, was really great fun. Now music brought the two of you together and it happened to actually happen here in the North Country through Carthage Little Theater, correct? That's correct. Tell us a little bit, a bit about that story. You remember where we were and what we were doing? Well, we were playing in the pit for Camelot and I was playing violin and Tim was playing trumpet and we were sitting across, across the pit from each other. One thing happened, one thing led to another, <laughs> and here we are. I mean, we don't have to go into great detail, but it was like a conversation, question about the music, uh, just caught each other's eye from across the That pit. was it, that, that was, was it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then we went and got some pizza, and now we have two kids. And the rest, as they say, <laughs> history, right? So you're both music educators today. Kent Central School District for you, Tim, He's right? Correct. Yep. And Potsdam for you, Jill, right? Yes. Uh, but you really have educated or been a teacher or mentor at all levels, whether it was in the elementary, high school, college, uh, even some adult learners, I would imagine, mm -hmm. too. Yep. That's right. What do you enjoy most about music education? And if it's changed in all this time that you've been educators, how has it changed? Well, with my job, I teach fourth, grades 4 through 12 strings. And so I really get to spend some time with the same kids and watch them grow and mature and become, um, you know, proficient and hopefully proficient. <laughs> um, but, but it's a really nice relationship that you get to develop with the kids because most, you know, most teachers, you have, they have the kids for a year and then they're gone but I really do get a chance to know them in, in, in detail. And um, I, I like that part a lot. I would say the same for me. I teach grades seven through 12 at Canton in, in the band program. And I also have been adjunct at St. Lawrence University since 2005. And so some of those kids continue on at St. Lawrence and I continue to see them for another four years. And those long-term relationships are the things I think that are the most meaningful because we see them grow not only as musicians, but also as people. And some of my greatest teachers have been my students and continue to be. I've, I've got some students that are now, have entered the profession either as performers or educators or a combination of both. And um, I continue to look forward to and benefit from the, the interactions with them now that they're entering into the, the workplace at a different time in history than I did. So they help to inform my practice and help me to evolve with the times. Is it inspiring to see sometimes some of the graduates or the students that you have worked with when they enter the profession and become teachers or mentors? What's that feeling like, knowing that you started with them at such a young age? It's about as gratifying as it gets for me to see, you know, my students start succeeding on their, in their, on their career path and knowing that maybe there was a contribution to that, but as I said, also knowing that I can count on them for continued um, inspiration and preparation for, for today's music student. Now, the Orchestra of Northern New York is an agency that you're both very invested in, 
It's based in Potsdam and the agency provides live orchestral music performances to audiences of all ages in the North Country. Why do you think the orchestra is so special to this area? Well, it, is ba it, it has a core of musicians that are based here in, in northern New York. And it also brings musicians in from farther away, you know, Syracuse, Rochester, Montreal, New York, Boston. I play violin in the orchestra, and it's really like a little family or big family, but the people that come in to play, there are a number of them that come and play, you know, have been coming and playing with us for years. And it's like going to visit, you know, they, they have people in, that they stay with and that they're glad to see and, and come back to visit with. And it's, uh, the quality of the music is exceptional. It's a, it builds, I think it builds community. And there, people look forward to the concerts we do every year. My first motivation uh, and interest in it was that it gave Jill, who's a very fine violinist, an outlet to, to perform with a high-level group. Coming from the Syracuse area where she grew up, of course, there were opportunities there to do that. But up here, it's just really special that there is an organization of that quality that she could be, become involved with. And you started playing, I believe, in 1992, is that right? Yep, that's right. And shortly thereafter, they, there was an opportunity to serve on the board. And as I found out more about the organization, both the rewards but also the challenges, you know, under the hood, it was something that I found for a, from a business point of view uh, to be of interest and challenge. So I served on the board for about five or six years at that point, then I stepped off because of other commitments, but then rejoined in the mid-2000s, I think. And um, it's been a very interesting combination of arts and business to try to figure out how to support the artistic aims while at the same time keeping things financially balanced. So Jill and I have continually have very interesting conversations about you know the the inner workings of the organization and the one thing that is has remained constant is the artistic quality and Ken Andrews is to be thanked for that his vision and passion is unique what is the future of orchestral music in northern New York you know Ani really is the presence that we have in the tri-county area that's doing it the best how are you capturing or what ways has the organization evolved to begin to capture and build interest in the younger audiences so that they have some exposure and some experiences into that type of music? Last season, um, the, not the 2017-18, but 2016-7, when the plan is, it was in April of... 20... It was 2017, it was okay, 2017. so... Yeah. last year. And that was the first time that we had really engaged in a multimedia performance um, in which we had a large screen behind the orchestra. And of course, Holst Planets is one of the foundation works in the repertoire. But accompanying it were um, scenes from uh, the solar system and beyond of the, of the Hubble that had been taken by the Hubble spacecraft, I believe, the Hubble telescope. 
and there was a gentleman that operated the computer so that the music in the scenes that we were seeing behind the orchestra coincided um, in kind of like a almost a visual ballet and so that was extremely attractive to all ages you know in, including young young kids uh, this coming season we have a program in March that will be all music from all from the Harry Potter films so we do try to keep in mind how can we draw in the younger uh, ages because that's going to be the audience of the future. There were a number of years that we teamed up with Community Performance Series, CPS in Potsdam, and there was always a children's concert that was produced during the school day and kids would be bussed in and uh, Maestro Andrews would do some talking as well as playing to try to amplify the inner workings of the ensemble and how it all comes together. Um, unfortunately, funding for that was lost, and we're you know always on the lookout for ways to to get that funded so we can keep that going. One other initiative that we are pursuing for this current school year is to hopefully get some smaller groups, some chamber groups like string quartets or maybe brass quintet, out into the public schools during the school day so that we can do you know informances, performances, and informances. For the, for the school kids. Sounds like some good initiative, proactive initiatives kind of happening there to give these students some more exposure to the performing arts and the orchestra itself. Through your experiences as teachers and performers, you've seen or played in some outstanding concerts. I know there's a plethora of these, so it might be hard to pick and choose favorites, but I'm gonna do some quick hitting questions to see what your favorites might be. I'm going to alternate these questions. So I'm just going to go back and forth, and Jill, I'm going to start with you first, okay? okay? All right, I'm so ready. <laughs> best, best local performance, and if you have more than one, best local performance that you've seen in your time up here? That I've seen? That you've seen. That I've seen. Um, first one that comes to mind was Snarky Puppy. I like the, the title. Can you, can you elaborate <laughs> on that? It's a, um, Snarky Puppy is a, I think they call themselves a jazz collective. So it's a small, it's a small, small group. How many, like eight? Yeah, that's uh, about right. Around yeah. eight, eight, and the number changes depending on um, when and where they are. But um, they're pretty progressive, um, and they were brought in as part of the CPS, the Community Performance Series. Tim, question for you: the best show or performance that you've been a part of? I would have to say, just because of the scale of it, it was the 1980 Winter Olympics, because I was at Crane at that time, and we were going up daily to do the, well, did the opening ceremony, then we would do the awards on Mirror Lake in the evenings, where they would do the medal ceremonies. At that time, it's not, wasn't recorded like you hear on TV now. We were playing the anthem live and um, for, for those each night, and then the closing ceremonies, we were on the bill with Chuck Mangione, and was, you know it was just a big deal day after day. Yeah. Favorite artist or musical performer? Sting, Yo-Yo Ma, Chris Thiele, and the Punch Brothers. <laughs> that was quick. Why? Why those? Why those? Mm-hmm. Well, Yo-Yo Ma, because not just because he's a fabulous musician and performer, but he is also a great 
communicator. He's um, interested in life. He's tries different things. Sting because I've just always liked his music, and um, Chris Thiele is also um, well. He's he's a virtuoso, and his group, the Punch Bro Punch Brothers, is oh, they they're just they take the traditional the traditional and twist it. Tim, favorite piece to perform? Don't particularly have a favorite piece to play. I'm thinking about it's the groups that I play in and it doesn't matter what we're playing if I'm playing with a group of uh, creative individuals that are having as much fun with the music and with each other as I am. I think uh, I'm currently playing with a classic rock group called Northbound and we've done a series of summer concerts at like the Norwood Village Green and the Waddington Riverside series. We just played Morristown last week. We've got a thing with um, the Edwards Opera House coming up on, on uh, Saturday, this coming Saturday. And it's a group of six guys and they're all about my age, maybe a little bit older. We've all been playing professionally for 40 or 50 years. And it doesn't matter whether we go in with a prescribed set list of tunes that we're going to play or if we just go in and let it, let it occur as it's going to occur, occur to include requests from the audience. It's just a very relaxed and fun setting, but the performance level is at, is at a high level. And so that's in a classic rock setting. It's just one of the most, it's the, one of the most fun musical, ongoing musical experiences I've had. And that would be true also of some jazz groups that I play in where, the, where everybody's relaxed and, and, and very capable at what they're doing. So it's not so much what tune is it, but it's the synergy of the musicians playing whatever tune that it is. So over all these years, you have been able to play in a lot of different places. But I would imagine you must have a favorite venue or two. So this question is for both of you. Favorite place to play or places to play? Well, Hosmer Hall is always pretty fun. You walk out on that stage and there's a big auditorium and um, that always feels pretty good. Um, Playing in the Presbyter First Presbyterian Church here in Watertown, Ani plays. We, we have a bring our concerts down here fairly regularly, and um, that has a really nice sound to it. I would have to say I've really fallen in love with these uh, summer concert venues, like the Norwood Village Green, and the Waddington Pavilion is absolutely beautiful. It's just really people are that are coming to see it. They're bringing their folding chairs and their picnic baskets. And on these beautiful evenings in the summer, everybody's having a great time. It's a real sense of community. And I think those are currently my favorite venues. Certainly the ones that Jill mentioned are great concert halls to play in. And this past weekend when Ani was in the Clayton Opera House, it couldn't have been more of a communal hug than was going on because the, the orchestra barely fit on the stage and the house was full and you could hear people ooing and eyeing and in that just that kind of intimacy is just very special all of the opera houses in the area there's an you know edwards, edwards and russell yeah. and clayton and um, the history in those places um, 
is fabulous. And it's been really interesting to see them be renovated and have um, become the culture, you know, cultural centers that they really are. Um, I played in the Clayton Opera House before they did, before they started doing all, all the work on it. And it's really fun to go back in there now and, and see how it's been updated. And, um, and they, they're all like that, Russell Edwards. Is there any nervousness before you play? You've, you've done this so many times before, but as, as a performer, do you get nervous before shows? Oh yeah, still. Does it feel like it did when you were in high school or going to those private lessons when you were a kid? And just some of those initial anxiety? I don't know if it would be up to that level, but. There's always a little bit of that there. Mm -hmm. I agree. Maybe not, you know, not like the first time you play and, uh, you know, when you're a kid, but there's always just a little bit of that excitement and it's live music. You don't. You don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> there are no guarantees. <laughs> All right, last quick hitting question. Do you listen to any current music right now that you enjoy that may surprise some folks? You're a pretty eclectic uh, music listener. Lake Street Dive. <laughs> Lake Street Dive. Yeah, you yeah, got to check them out. That's probably my favorite right now. You got to check those, those folks what out. What kind of genre? Uh, R&B, yeah, R&B roots. Yeah, the lead singer has a fantastic voice. It's a quartet. They were all classically trained at, at Curtis I do. or one of the music conservatories. Maybe it was New England Conservatory. I can't remember which, but they're really have a great feel, great sound. So for those listening, Lake Street Drive, go find it on Spotify or Pandora or <laughs> wherever you're listening to your music. For me, one of the best concerts, maybe the best live concert I've ever been to was um, ACDC. Really? Yeah, <laughs> went up with a group of teachers from Canton and we just had a ball. And I, I was amazed at the three generations that were present there. You know, there were grandparents, parents, and kids. And it was a great show, and you know, I, I was surprised by that because I didn't grow up listening to that music. I grew up listening to Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis and Wynton Marcellus, so it was a surprise to me, and I'd recommend it to anyone. Catch them while you can. Catch them while you can. <laughs> as many of the original members as possible. Right. Uh, you've given so much to the arts, and you do give back to the community in other ways as well. To kind of go to, to the roots of the foundation of your giving, who taught you or gave you those values of giving back, whether it be through music, whether it's through education, or just to your community? My mom was a single mom as of 1962 with four, four of us to take care of. And she did a great job of doing that. And there was a gentleman well, it was my mom and my two grandmothers that were obviously very generous. And my mom had us, <laughs> had us take Bible, or uh, to go to Bible school, Bible study in the summers, I think primarily so that she could have a few minutes 
of her own. But the, the ladies at, that ran the Bible uh, study, and I was talking, I'm, I'm talking again, I'm maybe four or five years old, and I remember them as being so nurturing and so, so wonderful. It was a safe place to be, uh, a nice place to be. But also about that time, I remember um, Joe Westcott ran a general store in Chasm Falls. And every once in a while, he would drive, pull into the driveway with a bag full of groceries and bring it in and set it on the counter and then leave with, with no interaction at all. And looking back on it now, I'm quite sure that he was providing those at no cost to my, my mom and delivering them so that, you know, there would be food there. And uh, for the next, I guess, 30 years or so that Joe lived, he was exactly that way for everyone that I ever saw him interact with. And um, I aspire in my life to learn to be that way, to be that generous and that selfless, to be understanding of the needs of those around me and then simply to provide it in an unnoticed way. And so I was an incredible um, mentor in that regard for me to see early on. I think what really forwarded it for me as, as um, a young man was I, I graduated from Crane and um, went to Albany because I'd done my student teaching there and hooked up with some entrepreneurs that I really enjoyed doing business with, making music with. And uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Mitchell. He's actually from the Brownville area. He and Ron, Ron and his wife, Ronnie, uh, became very important to me in terms of my understanding of how to uh, tie together business with living a generous life. And he got me in the habit of reading. And the more I read books about uh, how to develop those aspects of yourself, the more I realized that it's a discipline, that, that philanthropy is a discipline. And it doesn't matter how much you have. It's a, it's a habit you form and and you go and you do what you can you know it's not the amount it's 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 the fact that you're conscious of it and the more i've been able to give the better it has felt and i don't give to get but it's and it, i i'm a believer that you, you can't give it all away because it's it's a universal phenomenon that the more you give the more you get but it's again not the motivation isn't to get when you give is just a habit. And that only came as a result of being exposed to people like Joe Westcott and Ron and Ronnie Mitchell that obviously lived the most successful of all lives, regardless of what is in the bank account. Sure. And uh, so sure. that, those are the, that's how I got on the path and that's what has kept me to be inspired. Well, I've, my family, um, it wasn't philanthropy, philanthropy <laughs> wasn't really anything that was talked about. Um, we went to, we went to church and were, you know, and were involved in church things. Um, and, and so that was probably where I learned those sorts of values without really knowing it. I don't, I, I think, um, and then when I met Tim and married Tim and we started having conversations about things, 
um, he had real he had real really strong convictions, and so that rubbed off on me. <laughs> well, you make a concerted effort to to include your two daughters, Abby and Kate, in your giving as well. And um, I know you've mentioned, particularly in the recent years, that you would have some more of these family conversations with them about the things that you give to. Why do you feel that's an important piece, um, getting your children involved in giving back as a family? Well, I think that we teach our children more than we possibly know just by the example that we set. What you did spoke so loudly I could not remember what you had said Rings resonates pretty strongly because they, they're very observant. But we did feel it was important to get their input because we're sharing whatever resources that we're able to generate, we share them as a family. So it would seem just make sense that we include them in the decision making as to what we do with that. Um, when it came time for us to move uh, from Huvelton to Canton, um, we probably looked at 30 properties or so, but we always brought the girls with us and they would have been at that time maybe eight and five, seven, seven and four, eight and five. That, yeah. yeah, so they, they were young and they were, they were involved. They would walk through the houses with us and we'd get back in the van and we'd talk about what we saw, what we liked, what we didn't like. And we would do the same thing um, each New Year's in terms of setting some goals. And I can remember Abby, a year and a half old, in the backseat yelling, I love mommy, that is my gold. <laughs> <laughs> but we've always included them in those conversations and, and, to, to, and to include asking them, you know, where would you like to see some resources go? And both of them were very fond of animals, so the animal shelter was there. Usually go their go-to <laughs> choice. Uh, yeah. You mentioned previously that there are certain individuals and families that set such an important standard for giving back to strengthen a community. In a previous conversation we had, you had noted can residents such as Peter and Becky Vandewater, Peter and Kathy Wyckoff, and some others that have really set a nice standard that has caught your attention. Why do you feel it's important to monitor the example set by others? How does that influence the way that you give back? Being around people like um, the Vanderwaters and the Wyckoffs is just an inspiration in itself because of the integrity that they so obviously have in their genuine concern for the communities that, that they live in. I think that there's a park in Canton, the Heritage, Heritage Park? Yeah, Heritage Park. That took a space that was next to useless for everyone and created a really beautiful space that allows people to find a little bit of calm in the in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the village there. And I remember Peter asking if the jazz band would open up, you know, on the official opening if we could be there for um, just to provide some music for the opening ceremonies. And um, we did that, and he just demonstrated such appreciation for that, you know, connection with the community. Now, that's really neat in that a space that was not useful became very useful in that he was mindful enough to connect, again, three generations of the community and let everyone in the community see that that was the case, you know, without um, beating it into anyone's head. It just happened. But that 
comes as a result of being wise and understanding what works and how to get things done. So those are the kind of, kinds of people that I, I aspire to be, for sure. With both of you again being steeped in education and playing a critical role in mentoring the next generation, Jill, what is the, the message that sometimes you might share with the students about giving back to your community and why that's such an important value in your life? may not realize it when you're in high school necessarily, but what value it may hold for you as you become a young adult and certainly older? Well, I think um, we do have to show them how to be part of the community. And, you know, a lot of times I'll try to have have groups play for spaghetti dinners or um, or art show openings or things that things that are going around going on in the school community in the larger community and giving them a chance to volunteer their time I think they just need to learn that they can they can do that um, it's not hard to do it's um, something that we all should should do to be part of everybody that that we share the space with. <laughs> what are some of the most important community causes or community efforts that you give back to and why? Uh, the Northern New York Community Foundation is clearly um, a focus of our giving at this point, whether it's directly to Ani or uh, Canton Potsdam Hospital or um, hospice or the foundation directly. Um, the work that you're doing in, in, in the region is tremendous and it really helps us to start to organize, you know, that part of our our resources. Where should it go? Well, where it where it should go is where it's going to do the most good. And you folks really seem to have a sense of how to do that. So Jill and I are, are most appreciative about that. The other thing that I would like to become more consistent at is giving blood. I think that we're seeing the the need for that with you know the signs that you see during blood drives that we're need a need of all types. And I have given blood a number of times, but I don't give blood every time that I can, primarily because I'm too busy to, or I don't schedule it soon enough or something. But that is one area that I would like to increase my involvement in. I know another favorite of yours that you didn't mention, but NCPR certainly was another one I know we had oh. noted before, just <laughs> yes. your affinity for the organization too, as well. But. Yeah, that's a favorite for sure. It's a central part of our day, without a doubt. To wrap up, how critical is the performing arts to the enrichment of the quality of life in the North Country? I feel as if it is, kind of as we opened, a forgotten element to the community in some respects. I think when folks are thinking of giving back, basic human need rises to the top because it is most visible. But the arts carry such an important piece to the vibrancy of a community. So how would you art articulate again just how critical the performing arts is to the holistic nature of, of a community and how it operates. Well, it's Lenny Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein's 100th birthday was Saturday, two days ago. And you gave me a quote of Lenny that's on the wall in the studio and it goes something like, 
Life without uh, music without life is unfortunate. I can't remember what that <laughs> word. It, but life without music is unimaginable, and I think that that sums it real sums it up really well as to the role that that the arts play in the community. Um, without the arts, it's lifeless. At the con, um, we were at the um, the Ani concert yesterday and the lady that was sitting behind us um, was just so appreciative of the quality and the number of concerts and performances that we have here in well I mean, we were talking specifically Potsdam, Canton area, um, but she grew up in, in Chicago, lived in Chicago, and uh, moved here to be near her, her children uh, about 14 years ago, and she still can't get over the quality of music that's just, you know, five minutes from her house. And she really, she appreciates that, and I think a lot of people do. We have so much here so accessible, I mean, you may have to drive a little bit, but for a very reasonable price, I mean, there, you know, you go see, this is world-class world entertainment, I guess, I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to use that word, but world-class art, and you go anywhere else, New York, you pay $100 a ticket, you can go for 25 or free, depends on what it, you know, depending on what it is. But it brings, it brings people together to experience um, to have a, to have a an experience um, that you can't get just listening to your radio or watching TV. I was thinking that yesterday, um, the number of performances we've been to and been a part of. And um, yesterday, I was struck again at there's nothing like being there in, in, at a live performance. It's a totally unique experience that'll never happen again. That group of people in that place interacting with each other, the performers and then the audience and the audience then responding. And there's just a certain energy that is unique to that experience. And I know that everyone left elevated. Their spirits were elevated as a result of being there. And, um, it brings good things to life. Well, Jill and Tim, thanks for sharing your experiences in music and philanthropy with us and for all that you're doing, not just in St. Lawrence County, but across the North Country and everything that you do. Thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you for Thank including you. us. Thank you for having us here. That's it for another episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, every interview is easily accessible and always free, whether it's online or on your mobile device. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. We also have a website. Listen anytime to other conversations, which also feature interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to www.nnycpodcast.com. Our thanks again to Tim and Jill Savage for joining us. Please come back and listen again to another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. To listen to the interview in its entirety and others just like it, go to nnycpodcast.com.